Hey, everybody. Welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of MileMarker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of MileMarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected. Welcome back to Connected. I'm your host, Kyle Van Pelt, CEO of Mile Marker. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Charlie Harrison. Charlie, thanks so much for being here, man. Kyle, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think I would do it justice to introduce you. I could try my best, but you as a man of the people, I'd love for you to tell folks who you are and what you do. I am a 33-year-old commercial real estate broker in Atlanta, Georgia. I focus primarily in office leasing, tenant-side representation. Most of my clients are professional services firms, so I, I do very little technology leasing Uh, very heavy with investment banks, wealth advisory firms, RIAs, uh, law firms, accountants, groups like that. I love it. And and there it is, folks, because some of you may be wondering, why uh, why is a connected show having a commercial real estate broker on? But I know Charlie personally, and I know he serves a, a lot of the firms that look like the listeners to this podcast. And I think we can bring some incredible gems and insights to you on how to build your real estate strategy, but also how to grow your business. So, you know, Charlie, we're going to talk about that today. But before we dive into any of those good nuggets, this show is called Connected. um, And it's all about building better connections. Um, You know, whether that's through technology, which we do at MileMarker, but also just through people in general. And like I said, I've known you for a little while, and I know you to be someone who is great at connecting with others. I think you have to be in your business. And, and you're great at building rapport almost instantly. Like I've seen it. You just are really good at, at making people feel comfortable building rapport. So I want to kind of give you the mic and ask you the question, what advice would you have for the listener that wants to build better connections with people? It's, it's cliche to say, be authentic and be yourself. But I think, I think that's the truth. And I think I've been blessed in that from a young age, I was, I've been around people that are a lot older than myself from the time I was young. Again, my, my dad was a good golfer when I was growing up. I wanted to spend time with him. Easiest way to do that was on a golf course. I was usually playing with people. My dad's 30 years older than I am. So I was playing with, with my dad and his contemporaries. And I just had to find ways to connect with them. And I had to learn to ask questions that were interesting to them. I had to be okay with nobody really caring who I was or, or whatnot. So it was finding ways to naturally and organically pique men and women's interests who are much older than myself. And I think that's, that's served me well as, as I've become a professional now. That's actually a really interesting point I've never heard anybody talk about is if you're in a, in a scenario, because I think about that in my own life too. If you're in a scenario where you are constantly having to not just be around people older than you, but but actually connect with them and have conversations. Uh, it's different than talking to your peers. I, it, it, totally. I mean, I remember I was in seventh grade. My dad, our family moved from Atlanta, Georgia to Las Vegas. My dad worked for an airline that's based out there. Um, so I didn't know anybody at school. It was very natural for me on the weekends 
to again gravitate towards my dad, play golf with him, and I'd be playing with the chief financial officer of their airline, and I'm listening to him talk about you know second quarter earnings call, and it's like as a 16 year old, you just you learn almost by osmosis, and then you're he's definitely not going to ask you questions about you know your algebra test or something like that. So you 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 just learn kind of on the fly, and you figure out how to how to ask questions that a group that may not look or, or act like you finds interesting. Yeah, that's, that's good. So going a, a layer deeper on that, I think this is a, a theme on the show a little bit. It's, a, it's about asking good questions. Um, I think, I think everybody does small talk, you know, Hey, how, you know, let's talk about the weather or what do you do for work or all of those sort of things, but you reach the end of your rope on that pretty quick. So, so for you, Dive in a little bit to, to what did you learn about asking questions that the CFO of an airline would want to, you know, want to talk to a 16 year old about? Like, how did you frame those up? How did you think about it? How'd you get better at it? I think it started out. The questions were just like, help me learn. I'm a 16 or 17 or 18 year old that that doesn't know anything. So showing a ton of humility, admitting where where you're short or where you don't know. So it wasn't like I was sitting in there trying to talk shop as if I was some analyst quizzing the CFO at the end of the earnings call in the Q&A section. I just was like, what does this number mean? Why is that the way it is? And I think what I really found was that older, successful people want to help the next generation, right? And so like, it's not like, you know, an airline executive was looking at a then 16 year old going, man, I'm really helping this kid prep for his career. But I think he got a kick out of the fact that I was learning, right? And they were a part of that. And and so I would say, I would say I just I started asking questions because I wanted to know more. And then the no, the more I learned, maybe the more specific I then could be with with next round questions, you know, the when we played golf yeah. together seven months down the road. Yeah. Uh, I love that. So so what I heard in there is is be humble. Whether you're 16 years old or you're 60 years old, being humble enough to admit you might not know everything. And to ask questions with uh, a beginner's mindset, I heard that. And then being curious. I think one of the best ways to build connections is to be curious about people and not feel like you've got everything figured out. People, uh, people love to talk about themselves. I, I, I jumped at the chance to come on this podcast and talk with you, right? Um, so I think people inherently want want to talk about what they do and what matters most to them. And, and if you can find, it doesn't even have to be special, but just basic ways to, you know, get in front of folks and, and pique their interest. They, they'll gladly talk to you about what they, what they've done, what they're doing, what they plan to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we jump into, to what you do and what you're up to, one, one more question on building connections. But I think as I've observed you from afar and as I've gotten, gotten to know you a little bit better, I, I know you to have an incredible network. And I think that is, uh, an asset for you as you build your business. You and I've talked about this a lot of times. I actually think there are a ton of similarities between what you're doing and how you're building things and even your whole industry and uh, what I see with financial advisors, right? Even from like the big brokerages, like, a, you know, everybody knows the big names, just like we all know Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, all of that stuff. And then people going independent or all of these sort of things. There's so many parallels and you're building your business a lot through your network. Yeah. So I wanted to just ask you a little bit of like, what advice would you give to people who want to build? I think everybody wants to build a network, but like a network that's actually useful for you building and growing your business, not just for name dropping purposes. I think I think the term networking is often misused, right? Like if someone said we're going to a networking event, the image that I have in my mind is a bunch of people in a room that don't know each other and they're passing around business cards trying to pick up business. What can you do for me? What can you do for me? What can you do for me? The way 
that my most important and valuable mentors have have taught me to approach networking is the complete opposite. It is asking for nothing, expecting nothing in return, hoping for a lot, but expecting nothing in return and trying to give and create as much value as you possibly can. And I think that through the giving is where people like your name is is then top of mind, right? Whether it's making intros, a newsletter, there's a legendary commercial real estate broker in New York City named Bob Knackle, who uh, I've met with a few times. His personal brand is incredible, but like even people that don't know anything about commercial real estate probably know his name in New York City because of how much he gives and gives and gives, whether it be market updates or email blasts or newsletters or podcast interviews or whatever. Like he's giving so much more than he's probably receiving. And and because of all that giving, he's he's the number one commercial real estate professional in in Manhattan. So I think I think that's the way I try to do it. I'm I'm a I'm a young commercial real estate advisor, but I've I've tried hard to be intentional about my outreach and to give a lot more than I ask in hopes that on down the road the selling, if you will, isn't really thought of as selling. Like it's people calling me as opposed to me calling them. Yeah. No, I love that. That's awesome. So yeah, talking about the similarities between an RAA and what you're doing, I think for for people, it'd be good to frame up. From my my words, you know, Charlie kind of just broke away from what would be a wirehouse into more of an independent situation, um, just like a lot of the people listening to this podcast. So maybe maybe you can frame that up for the audience a little bit about what your role looks like now. Not all commercial real estate is is sort of the same. Like you're kind of in a in a different scenario now where you've you've gone independent, you're building a business. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like and the parallels you see between that and, and financial advisors. I think the the crossover is unbelievably similar. I was at a large publicly traded brokerage firm for a number of years to start my career and then joined a small independent firm in Atlanta here in January. I would say similar to wealth advisors, my number one goal is solving clients' problems. My number two goal is trying to find more clients. <laughs> It's it's no different than like a couple of my best friends are, are in the wealth advisory business. I think that the way we prospect is very similar. The way that you know I hopefully give and give and provide market updates and and try to be known around Atlanta as the leading financial services real estate expert in the city. Most of my contemporaries on the wealth management side probably seek to be known as you know hey I'm 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 a leading investment uh, individual and if you're not putting your money with me you're at a disadvantage, you know, I guess in a, in a perfect world, that's if someone said, what do you know about Charlie Harrison? The response would be, if you, if you run a, a professional services business in the Southeast or in the city of Atlanta, and he didn't help you negotiate your real estate strategy, you probably left money on the table. I think that's right. Uh, I think that's right. And I love the, the parallel of Really, knowledge combined with service is is huge, and we're going to dive into that here uh, as we transition. But not all advisors are created equal. Some advisors are just better planners and and things like that than other advisors. I think every advisor out there knows how to help you understand what retirement looks like, knows how to help invest your money. But not every advisor is the same level of planner. As somebody who's worked with you, I would say um, not every real estate broker has the same level of knowledge. I mean, and I, I still remember being struck by um, you taking me to tour some buildings and, you know, everybody would know, hey, here's how many square feet this is or whatever. But you were like, 
no, this is what it's going to be like to leave this building at five o'clock, like to, to try and go home. Like if you go work at this building that a lot of people love, you're going to add 20 minutes to your commute because you're not going to be able to turn out of the building. And I was like, that is that is true knowledge of a market. And I, I was always really kind of shocked by it. I think, thank you. Um, I think you just, you can't hide in fake passion. I don't know if I told you this, but I actually worked at a big wirehouse for a year before getting into real estate. So my, we can get in this later, but my, for the listeners that, that who I'm, I'm new to, which will probably be 99.99% of anybody listening to this. I played golf in college at Wake Forest. I tried to play professionally for three and a half years afterwards, wanted to get into real estate. No one would hire me because the market was humming. People didn't hire straight into brokerage. I was getting married at the time. I didn't want to say to my father-in-law, my now father-in-law, you know, trust me with your most valuable asset or, you know, your daughter, but I, I don't have a job. I'll get one. Only job I could get was like as a coffee getter at this well-known bank. I, I remember the the number. I think he trades off with a guy like in Greenwich or New York. But the like the number one wealth advisor in the country is here in Atlanta. The man is just so passionate about managing money. It's not like I asked him one time at lunch. I was like, "What are your hobbies?" He's like, "Managing money in red wine." Like he's like, "I have a nice wine collection," but like I genuinely love the markets and. And I, I mentioned Bob Knackle in New York before. I had lunch with him in May, late May, up in in New York, at dinner with him. Excuse me. And um, I asked him the same thing. I'm like, "What do you? What do? You, what are your hobbies? What do you do in your free time?" And he was like, "Charlie, like real estate." He's like, "If I," he said, "My wife and my daughter were going to. I think his daughter had like a hockey camp or something like that." And he's like, "I'm I'm going to stay in the city on Saturday and drive around and look at buildings. That's that's what I do in my free time." So I think. I think people oftentimes wonder, like, how do the guys and gals at the top get there? I, I think, I think people find a true passion, and like, it's obvious to clients and prospects. And, and again, I think in the interactions I've had with you, I, I genuinely love what I do. I love that office brokerage positions me to basically earn a real life MBA, and I get to learn about the inner workings of so many different businesses through the medium of real estate strategy. And so I think it makes natural sense for me to try and know as much about what I want to counsel clients on as I can. Like we had a big law firm pitch a couple of weeks ago for a group that I, I think would would consider new construction. The lease would be big enough that that a developer would actually build something for them if they were to to move out of their existing premises. Well, I I walked Midtown Atlanta and stood at the most trafficy corners of a couple of different development sites at like 4.45-ish on certain weekdays. Granted, it was the summertime and the traffic was a little off, but I wanted to be able to say to this law firm, I know this doesn't register to you because the building, if it's built, is still four years away, but like, here's what the current traffic pattern looks like at the corner of West Peachtree and 14th Street. And and people trying to make a right-hand turn, A, it's not possible, B, they're gonna have to go left. And like things like that, people don't usually think about, but if you love what you do, standing out on the corner of West Peachtree and some Midtown Cross Street is not work. It's just part of the job and it's fun. Uh, I love it. I love it. And I think you've just displayed, you know, why you uh, ha have had so much success, you know, in, in your careers you've gone. So let's talk a little bit about this. So you're an incredible real estate advisor. And as we've already established, you work with a lot of professional services companies like wealth management firms. I think the world's changing a lot when it comes to office space. Interestingly, the wealth management uh, world was forced remote with COVID, but I think they were some of the first to come back. I, I don't think they kind of embraced this whole work from home as much. Some people did. 
But a lot of people are trying to figure out office space. And then, you know, a couple of headlines this week, Zoom is bringing people back to the office. A lot of people coming back to the office. Feels like the pendulum is swinging a lot. So, you know, kind of open mic here, but what are you seeing out in the wild right now as it pertains to just the trends with office space in general, people going back to the office? What are you seeing? A little bit of everything. I think I can answer your question uh, geographically and then and then especially like kind of asset class wise. I'm very blessed to do what I do for a living in the city of Atlanta, Georgia, where you'd have to have your head stuck in the sand to to think that in any city challenges don't present themselves around office. But relative to cities like like San Francisco, the Bay Area and and even New York a little bit, it's not been as difficult. You know, the toll that work from home and, and the pandemic took on the office market's not not been nearly as, as tough here in Atlanta. I'm seeing certainly a return to office. Amazon, Apple, BlackRock, Chipotle, Disney, uh, IBM's three days a week. JP Morgan told managing directors, you got to be in five days a week. Most all other employees are, are four days. Meta, Snapchat, Tesla, 40 hours a week. We don't care when, but it's got to be 40. So I think, let me back up. I think, I think, I think I'd say this. I, I certainly would never wish the pandemic happened, nor do I want it to happen again. I think the one thing that I like that it did to the office was that it killed the notion that only good work could be done in an office. I remember when I worked at that big wirehouse, I, I wanted to travel back to Atlanta um, on the day after New Year's. My wife and I were were about to embark on a long road trip. It was going to be a lot less traffic the next day. I was a nobody, like legitimately a paper grabbing coffee getter. And I emailed my boss and was like, hey, I'll have my hotspot on. Can I come back the day after? Not this one day. And he was like, no, we really need you in the office. And I'm like, you don't. I it, you don't like you want for no other reason than it was a button a seat. He wanted me there that day. So like that would be a non-issue now because of COVID. But I do think that m- most professional services employers feel like employees more often than not work better together. So we're certainly seeing a return to office. I think most professional services firms instituted some type of return to office strategy kind of before technology firms did. I think early on it was easy to look at banks and say, well, of course, they're instituting return to office policy. They hold the debt on X, Y, and Z property in this city. And as far as I know, Chipotle, Tesla, Snap, I don't think Snapchat owns CMBS debt on any building in Manhattan or anything like that. And Evan Spiegel said, hey, you know, we, lead, we you got to be back at least four days. So we're certainly seeing that in Atlanta. I, I would honestly say most of my clients never really left the office. They just were more lenient with junior staff saying, hey, you want to stay, you know, at the lake with your buddies an extra day on Monday, but you can plug in. That's great. But, you know, come back on Tuesday. And then I would say the second thing I'm seeing is that most office buildings are okay. Some are not, right? Like there was, I saw a, a report probably a week or so ago that said something like 10% of all office buildings comprise 60% of the total office vacancy in the country, right? So like you've got these zombie towers in the outskirts of Plano, Texas, right? That like probably shouldn't have been built in the first place and now are are suffering because pre-pandemic it, people were forced in there and now they don't need to be. So I think that's that's where you're seeing buildings are in trouble. But like most most core assets in in Buckhead uh, here in Atlanta in Midtown, we've got a couple of buildings that have that are fetching record high office, you know, rental rates, which has been wild to see. It's it's a hard thing admittedly to explain to a client because they'll say, well, I heard on CNBC that the office is dead. And I'm like, not in your building. Like, you know, your landlord just took your rate up 20%. 
So yeah, we're seeing it across the board again. Like like certainly there are some challenged loans in the office market. Certainly there are some buildings that are in trouble. I would say more are okay than are not. And at least for the ponds that I fish in, the you know professional services, investment banks, wealth management groups, law firms, and whatnot, they value good office and they're willing to pay for quality office space. Oh, that's awesome. I want to ask a couple more questions about this. So again, in the spirit of the show being called Connected, I, I think you and I've had some interesting conversations off air about this, but the, the most desired locations are continuing to be filled up. But still, I think people who own these spaces... Uh, the, the space itself is having to change, right? For for how people are wanting to work. It's not yeah. just how do we fit as many cubicles in there, all of that. So for the people coming back to office, how are they helping design environments that create better connection amongst their teams and better collaboration? Yeah, it's it's a good question. I think I think the days of just like crazy density are over, right? Like if you if you as an employer are going to ask or mandate that your employees be back in the office, it helps to be able to honestly give that employee a workplace that is superior to what he or she feels they have at home, right? And and putting them in 1983 Class B vintage, it's not going to create a happy experience. I think location of the building is is high up on the priority list, you know, walkable amenities. It was funny, I gave a tour to an investment bank client this morning who was really smart as they were touring, they they had obviously managing directors, but then they also brought along a couple, what seemed like first and second year associates to get their take on, you know, a couple of the different properties we saw. And so it was really interesting to hear or to see, you know, we would get in the van kind of after each site and and the MDs would say to the young folks, all right, what do you value? Like did did the furniture, the the swanky furniture in that class A, did that really move the needle for you? Um, did did the fact that you could walk to, you know, that new Neapolitan pizza place across the street, you know, does that does that move the needle for you? And oftentimes the answer was yes. So I think being intentional about where business is office and and then you know the flow of the space. I think again for most of my clients. Private space is still important, right? It's hard. It's hard to put attorneys out in in like an open bullpen and, and when they need quiet private space for heads down work. Same with investment bankers. So I think I think the actual like test fitted build out of of an office space probably doesn't look too much different for my clients post pandemic, if you could call it that, than pre. Certainly, like making office space feel a bit more homey and offer more collaboration space is something that I've seen even in fairly buttoned up, you know, investment bank spaces. What advice would you give? So, so uh, wealth management firm out there, they're, you know, maybe thinking about new office space or whatever. What advice would you give to, to the person going into this to just absolutely nail their search besides hiring a, a great advisor like you, of course, yeah. don't, don't do it alone. Um, hire people who know what they're talking about, but how would you prep someone to be really successful in an office space search? I would say for starters, don't do it alone. It doesn't have to be me, but let somebody help you. Like I, I tried to pitch an attorney a couple of weeks ago who was convinced that by doing self-representing, he was saving, you know, a bunch of money and the landlord was going to turn that savings into or that that fee, right, that would be paid by the landlord to an outside broker into deal savings for him. It doesn't work that way. The only thing that happens when you self-represent your office lease is the landlord's broker gets paid a double fee. So the landlord's broker is going to get paid more money to negotiate harder against you and tell you that you're getting a better deal. So that's number one. Number two would be 
hopefully you're working with somebody that is going to help you understand and that's going to listen to you and say, okay, like here are our short-term goals. Here are our long-term goals. Here's what we value most. Here's what we don't value that much. Again, the investment bank that I toured today, budget conscious, but they want to find space that's fairly moving ready. So kind of all we looked at were subleases. Well, you can find subleases in really nice buildings. Really important for them to not take two years of sublease savings and then all of a sudden turn right around in month 25 and be stuck with a 100% rent increase because their sublet expired in there. So we only looked then at subleases that had four or five or six years of term remaining on it where they're a good savings. So I think partnering with somebody is the right start. And then partnering with somebody who hopefully will will listen to you and have a genuine passion for what they do uh, will create a great outcome. The term flexibility is thrown around a lot, right? Like moving into space that allows for you to grow working with an advisor who understands, you know, options and the other the activity in the building, what other tenants have the right to do, what they can't do. This is kind of long-winded, but I I think it comes down to to working with the right person. Yeah. Well, how how do they find the right person, I guess, right? I mean, do you think did it should they should they interview a handful of people? Is it the same, you know, four or five questions to ask everybody? Like, how do they make sure that this person is going to represent what they're looking for in the best yeah. way and not just kind of go through the motions? I I think I would definitely recommend a group to, again, I keep going back to the investment bank that I toured today. This was not directly awarded business. I called on one of the managing directors probably over a year ago and then was continue to follow up with them probably every other month. Again, never asking for anything. Just, hey, here's what's going on in your building. Thought you'd want to know this. Finally was told, I guess, probably two or three months ago, hey, we've got a steering committee. We're going to sit down and we're going to interview. You know, We've got a couple of people that have called on us. We're going to interview three or four of you. And luckily, I was able to come out on top. But yes, do your due diligence. I mean, if you've got, I guess, a best friend that's in the business, you know, maybe he or she would be incensed if you didn't work with them. But what I've found too is that they're more good advisors than they're bad, right? So odds are you're going to be with somebody good. Awesome. All right. Let's move on a little bit to how how we can talk about growing business. Um, so I know you to be an incredibly disciplined prospector, and I know you do tons of cold outreach, right? Which a lot of people don't talk about anymore. And everybody's, you know, I want referrals, I want this, I want this. And you disciplined, do a lot of cold calls, a lot of just, you know, even old fashioned door knocking, like going and seeing things like that. You know, where does that come from? Like you're constantly on the hunt for new business. I know we all want to grow, but not a lot of people are willing to go do that, that cold outreach like you are. So where did that come from? Tell us a little bit about that and, and why you still do it. When I played professional golf, like I was not good enough to play college golf at Wake Forest. I was a good, solid high school player, like a, a single A, double A, the high school champion, not a like Wake golf not so much the four years that I was there, but certainly in the past and then current is like Duke basketball, right? Or Vanderbilt baseball. Like it's just or whoever that I can't remember who won the college world series this year, but I guess Wake's team was pretty good this year. So I got really lucky to go to Wake. I had no business really turning professional. My college roommate who was good enough to turn pro was going to do it. So I tried just to, just to scratch the edge. And I think what frustrated me about my professional golf stint was that like extra effort and hard work really wasn't going to put me on the PJ tour. And I don't mean to insinuate at all that, that Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy and the studs have not put in the hours. Cause like certainly they have, but with only a hundred jobs argue like in the world that put food on the table for a family, most of those hundred jobs are filled by individuals who can do with golf clubs, 
what they can do with golf clubs for the same reason that like Adele can sing the way she can sing. Like they just came out of the womb a little different. And Charlie Harrison spending an extra three hours a day working on his chipping or putting in time on the driving range is like, that's not the differentiator between beating that person that came out of the womb different. I think what I found in real estate is prospecting intentionally is like having a boat driving you know, moving along in the ocean and you get to determine the number of fishing lines that you dangle off the back of the boat, right? Like there's, I don't want to say there's no talent in this business because that's not true. Like some people are great speakers. They connect more easily with folks than some, some others do, but by and large, you create your own luck in, in real estate brokerage and prospecting probably the same is true in, in wealth management, looking for new clients that way. Like the boat that drives around the pond for 10 hours that that dangles, assuming they're fishing in the right pond and there are fish in the pond that has, you know, 50 lines hanging off the back of it is probably going to catch more fish than the boat that only has two or three lines. And so I, I like that in what I do now, I can't control if somebody does business with me, but like I can control kind of how lucky I get based on my, my effort, my output. So I think I try not to do too much like cold outreach. I think I, I've learned how to try and turn cold to warm, whether it's, you know, Hey, I, we know so-and-so I know we haven't spoken, but you know, Kyle told me it was okay to, to use his name in this email or in this phone call, you know, Hey, I know we haven't, we haven't met before, but the tenant next door to you is moving out, seeing 50 people a day, walk into your space. Looks like you guys might be bursting at the seams. If you want to move, you know, into space next door, give me a call, like things like that, where I try to filter the outreach through the lens of if I were the person receiving this, is it good enough where it would get my attention and I would respond? And if it's not, then I, I don't do it or I try and tweak it until it is. So A, I think I, I love chasing down new leads and new business because I feel like in a, in a small way I can control my effort and B, I try to do it in a way that's not totally random. It yeah. has some purpose behind it. I think that's, that's, there's a couple really good nuggets in there. My perception was a lot of these were cold outreach and you're like, no, not, you know, not really. Right. I'm trying to do some intentional work to figure out how to warm it up, which is good. Uh, it's not necessarily a warm referral, but you're still doing work to warm it up. And, and the, the having a bunch of lines in the water, I think one thing that holds a lot of people back from doing this is probably fear of rejection, even if they wouldn't say that, right. Yeah. They're afraid, Hey, if I put those 50 lines in the water, everybody's standing on the side of the pond, sees me driving around with 50 lines. And then they see me come back and maybe I only caught one or two fish. That's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. So how do you kind of get over that fear of rejection for these types of things? Or do you just not get over no, it? It's like you just No, I it. think, well, I, I don't think the fear ever really goes away. I think that you can kind of like make yourself numb to it. Honestly, a big, a big thing for me was the realization one day, this is probably a second year of my career. I was having like mega fear of the phone and, and would would find excuses not to call and, oh, I'm just so busy. And it was just like, it, all it was was like, Charlie, I don't want to get on the phone. And then it was like the light bulb went off and I realized the information I'm calling with or emailing with or door knocking with or handwriting notes with is worth something. Maybe I think it's more valuable than the recipient thinks it is, but like, I'm not wasting anybody's time. I can't control if the recipient thinks that or realizes that or not, but I know I'm not. B, I would rather disappoint or annoy, you know, somebody I'm not related to with cold outreach than come home and tell my wife, 
I was too scared to get on the phone today. So, so I didn't make any calls. That was basically it for me. It was like, they can't hurt my family. They can't punch me through the phone. They can't hack into my bank account and steal my money because I cold call them. They, they either are really receptive to what I have to say and, and it becomes a new client or an opportunity, or they just hang up. Like, you know, very seldom does somebody ever just like really let you have it on the phone. If they do, they just, it's not even you. Like they, they got a call earlier that their, their car needed $10,000 worth of work and you were the next call and they just let you have it. So anyways, yeah, I think it's just the realization that like nothing bad can happen to you from making cold outreach other than you get hung up on. And, and if it goes well, then, then it changes your life. I think that's really good. I think um, there's been a couple of different conversations on this podcast. And if you read about it, it's, it's like sales is all about the transference of belief, right? And, and if you believe that what you're doing is truly valuable for people, then that should be what you focus on more than the fear of whether or not somebody's going to reject you or something like that. Yeah. And that's kind of what I just heard you say. It's like, hey, this note, this thing that I'm sending, this is helpful. It ties, right? back, I mean, it ties back into the passion element that I talked about earlier. Like when I was a a kid, a kid, I, right out of pro golf, working at, at the big wirehouse, like the super successful number one, number two advisor, it never, he was never selling because it just, it was so obvious even in, in intro meetings with clients and prospects, like how much he loved what he did, that there was just this inherent intrinsic interest there by them to want to get to know more about what this advisor was saying. And I would hope that if I have the ability to meet with people or chat with them, that the authenticity and the real interest in, in my profession, you know, comes across. And it's not, I, I, I really don't feel like I'm selling anybody anything. I feel like I'm just trying to educate people. And if I get paid for educating them, then so be it. I love that. And I do feel like the people who are more successful, they have some level of that mindset, yeah. right? It's like it probably starts out as trying to sell things and all of that. But then you kind of realize, hey, this isn't working. But the more that I teach people about how this works or the more that I help them, yeah. the more business kind of tends to show up. Yeah, I mean, you don't, um, you don't know what you don't know, right? It's like my first year in brokerage, I was selling. It was just I would call day and night trying to get anybody that would talk with me to talk with me, anybody that would meet with me to meet with me. And I didn't. I probably wasted a lot of people's time, you know, four or five, six years ago. And, but it was, you don't know what you don't know. And now as I've had some experience and I've done some deals and I, I understand where tenants are moving and why they're moving and where they're going. And that's the kind of information that really does carry weight. I think, I think it's easier. It stinks because somebody that's thinking about getting into this business or into wealth management business is going to hear, you know, I can't create great value as a first year. That's not entirely true, but it's like, you have five years experience when you have five years experience and you have 10 when you have 10 and 20 when you have 20. It's like, you can't, you can't cheat the time that way. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, Cause I think everybody wants to figure out how to build consistent growth. You're out there putting the 50 lines out of the back of the boat. And I think that's good, but okay. Hope somebody gets on the line. You know, how do you run a process to make sure that you're still putting the 50 lines out, but you're also not just prospecting. We got to actually take those prospects and convert that into real business. So how do you think about managing all of those different things? I don't know if I do a great job of it or not. I think, I think I'm a consistent, good canvasser, but I certainly have periods where I'll find myself just swamped with deals and then the deals close. And then I feel like I'm kind of back to square one. It's like, all right, we got to like put the arrows in the quiver and go hunting again. So I think hopefully as I'm older, I'd like to hire a team around me that can handle some of the non-revenue producing activity that I currently manage that will allow me to focus more of my time on 
revenue producing activity, RPAs to coin a, a Kyle Matthew phrase. I try not to do, this is like stepping back, I guess, more in life. I try not to have any habits in my life that aren't sustainable. Like I wanted to lose some weight at the beginning of this year. My, I'm a new dad. I felt like I was heavier than I needed to be, but I didn't, I'm not like, I have a brother who runs marathons and, you know, looks like a bodybuilder. Like I, that's not, I, I wasn't going to be able to do any of that. So I just said, I'm not going to eat seconds. I'm just going to, I'm going to eat what I want to eat, but I'm not going to eat seconds. And I knew that I could sustain that day in, day out and and not be like crazy deprived of anything. The same is true in prospecting. I'd love to have the ability to dangle 200 lines off the boat in the water and make 200 calls a day. Reality is, is I work for myself. I'm kind of my only employee. I don't have the time to do that. And so the goal that I set for myself is is 20 to 30 warm outreaches a week. That might not sound like a lot, but like I do it every single week. And I, I, I know before each day exactly who the four or five people I'm going to reach out to that day are. And, you know, that times 52 turns out to be decent number at the end of the year. And so I, I think going back to the start of my career, I was just wailing on the phones, calling a hundred people a day, just trying to get anybody to talk to me that would, I had, I don't know, my, in my batting average, if you will, was probably like I don't know, 0.01. And now I feel like I'm a 320, 350 hitter because I, I spend a lot more time researching the outreach is more intentional, but I'm consistent with it. And it's a manageable consistency. I love that. And there's a ton of, there's a ton of value and insight into that. Um, and I, and I think a lot of the advisors listen to this can learn from that. You know, you don't need to do hundreds and hundreds of outreach, but if you're consistent with it, you can build in yeah. a consistent way. I mean, even if you just uh, did 50 push-ups a day, but you did them every, like you're going to be stronger on Christmas day than you were at New Year's day, you know, 300 some odd days prior. But the guy that's like, I'm going to look like a beast. I'm going to join the gym and get shredded. Well, he burns out after a month because he doesn't, you know, doing the two hour a day workouts, just not sustainable. So I'm not saying don't shoot for the stars, but what's worked better for me is kind of all things in moderation and finding uh, manageable, sustainable habits, like eating less. I think that's so good, man. Like, I, I think we're seeing this just a lot in, in what we're doing at Mile Marker and all of that stuff. But everybody wants to try and come in with like the shiny new object or the flashy thing. And and as I have more and more of these conversations, it's like the the advice keeps coming back of consistently do, call it the boring work, but it's like consistently do the boring work and just just keep showing up and providing value. There's there's no sort of silver bullet. There's no fancy answer. It's like, just do the work every single day yeah. and you'll be successful. I could, I could all but guarantee. It's like here, again, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that a young person listening to this basically just heard me say it's hard to create value as a 22, 23 year old. But I, to that same person, I would say, if you get into real estate advisory and you reached out to 30 people a week consistently every week, between the ages of 23 and 60, when you are in your 60s and hopefully have grandkids, you will have a ton of money. Yeah. Like what? you will, you just will. It will compound and you kept doing it and you kept doing it. It's like, you know, it's like your your IRA or your 401k that that you put money into in your 20s and as opposed to the guy that starts when he's 40, like it, it, it will happen. Yeah, I love that. All right. Let's transition to the last segment of the show. I call it Beyond the Bio. Um, you've already talked a little bit about uh, your time as a, as a golfer, but I'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about this. I think tons of people would love to know, like, what is it like 
to try and become a professional golfer. We all see Tiger and Rory and all of that. Everybody knows about that. But as someone like you, like Division One college golfer, you went to Corn Ferry Tour. I think you played on PGA Canada, PGA Latin America. Like, tell people what it's like to try because I think a lot of people maybe romanticize it. So being a golfer, even good enough to get there, by the way, there's a, there's a lot of really really great golfers who don't even sniff the Corn Ferry Tour. Yeah. So you've at least gotten there. Tell us about that experience. I, I was I was good. I just wasn't good enough. And I think a lot of that boils down to kind of what I touched on earlier. Like again, I when I was trying to crack the PGA Tour, it was before the Live Golf Tours competition like infused so much capital into the PGA Tour. Like a big PGA Tour winners check when I was playing was a million five, a million six. Now that's third place at the Bay Hill if it's an elevated event, which is insane. So again, a, a lot of my decision was through what I knew at the time, which was really truly there were like 100 to 125 jobs that put food on the table. And then of those 125 jobs, probably only like 50 or 60 were jobs worth having where you could fly private with your family, bring your family on the road, stay in nice hotels. Like the guy that was 125 on the money list in 2013 was not like driving a Range Rover and flying net jets. Like he's flying row 28 of Southwest on Sunday night and staying in the Hampton Inn, leveraging his courtesy car. So I'm glad I tried. I just think, I think for me, the decision to, to stop playing professionally came down to, I just had an honest conversation with myself and then with my dad, or he was like, how good do you think you can be? And I said, I, I think best case scenario, I'm like a corn fairy tour journeyman and maybe I have a year or two where I crack the PGA tour, but like, I'm again, when, when there are 125 jobs and a hundred of them are filled by touch from birth talents and there's 25 for, for guys that I don't want to say shouldn't be there, but, but maybe they should be doing something else, but they grinded, they got lucky or they, you know, capitalized on a good opportunity and, and earned a PGA tour card lobbying for 25 jobs was just that was just too much yeah it was the gamble i just didn't think the juice was worth the squeeze right like if again back then you, you could be the 125 best golfer 125th best golfer in the world and be stressing about your job security year in year out if you're the 125th best wealth advisor in the world i don't know what you're making four or five million dollars a year probably and like you know unless your clients all leave you your job's not going away so i'm glad that i did it it taught me a lot about uh, time management. I felt like I grew a lot as a person. I didn't get to study abroad in college because golf's a two-season sport. I played most of my professional golf outside of the United States. So it developed discipline and time management skills that uh, I would argue probably nothing but that experience could create. So I was very thankful for it. That's awesome, man. All right. Favorite, favorite golf course you've ever played? Pine Valley Golf Club in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. That, you know, kind of perennially the number one, yeah. right? So it's it's worth the hype. Yeah, it's very good. It's um, every hole is, looks different. Every I, I think truly, maybe this is a good measure. It's the only golf course that I remember playing where I hit all fourteen golf clubs in my bag. You know, a lot of times a, cool. a better player will get done, and you know they won't have touched a three or four or five iron or a hybrid. Um, but Pine Valley, I hit. Maybe it's because I hit it all over the place, but I I hit all 14 clubs in, in my golf bag many times. That's awesome. So you've played Pine Valley and you've played a whole bunch of different golf courses around, but is there anything still left on the bucket list? A couple of courses that you haven't hit yet? That's a great, yes, lots of them. I, I've, I've been fortunate to play many great courses, but there's so many that I haven't played at the same time. I would love to play out in the, like on Long Island, out in the Hamptons, Shinnecock uh, National Golf yeah. Links. 
Friars Head, Maidstone, like any, I've just heard that the golf out there is supposed to be incredible. I've only seen it like on TV when they played the U.S. Open at Shinnecock. Never, never visited it myself. I know some of the people listening to this are probably, you know, out in that area in Long Island playing Shinnecock. So uh, if, you, if you if you have an invite for Charlie, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, hit us uh, up. I'll I'll cover all my guests and caddy fees. I I will I will play very fast and I'll I'll <laughs> I'll play okay. I love it. Uh, and then last, last question, kind of getting outside of golf, but I in, in some of the research I did, I found out you do some work with the Parkinson's Foundation. So what got you involved in that? What makes you passionate about that organization? Yeah, I, I don't want to misrepresent. I I would like to be more involved than I am, um, but it's a cause near and dear to my heart. My, my grandmother, my mom's mom, was diagnosed with Parkinson's in the mid-80s when she was in her late 50s. She passed away in the early 2000s from it. And then my mom was diagnosed with Parkinson's when probably five years ago when she was late fifties as well. So research, the understanding that I have is that uh, an early Parkinson's diagnosis in your fifties is, is no longer the death sentence that it was, you know, when my grandmother was diagnosed in the eighties, but you know, it's one of those deals where uh, you never think it'll happen to you or your family. And, and then it does. So my mom is an inspiration to me, uh, a huge fighter. And uh, I think I think just the fact that it hits close to home is why I'm passionate about trying to support the foundation. So my brother who, who runs marathons, he's going to run the New York Marathon again this year and support the Parkinson's Foundation to raise money. And, and uh, so all the Harrisons are, are trying to help out there where we can. I can't think of a better place to wrap up than that. What an amazing uh, story and tribute. Uh, really appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing a bunch of knowledge about real estate and about growth and about effort. Uh, you dropped some real gems today. Thanks, so no thanks for joining. All right, KVP. I'll talk to you soon, my man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker, and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review that helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.